in these truths. And so let's give our attention to Psalm 90. This is God's word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words penned by our father in the faith, Moses, so long ago and yet so relevant today, and we ask for your spirit now, Lord, that we could hear it, that we could understand, Lord, these truths about who you are, who we are, our need of you, and your promise and provision for us. So feed us this morning as only you can. Through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, it's December 31, 2023, and we're closing out another year and looking forward to a new year. Every 365 days, of course, we do this. Uh, the odometer of life just keeps ticking along. Um, you have odometers in your vehicles. I think they go up to like a million miles. Uh, the odometer of your life is vastly shorter. Uh, Moses says about 70 years, maybe by reason of strength, 80. Uh, he wrote that about 3,400 years ago. And yet it's exactly right, right? The average lifespan of a male in America is 73 years. The average lifespan for a woman is 79. The, um, I have to confess, the older I get, the more progressively personal those numbers become. <laughs> 73 is 13 years away. Uh, 13 years goes in a hurry. Uh, when I visit Randy's grave in Winchester Cemetery, um, I just realize more and more of those gravestones have birthdays close to mine. And um, what Moses says is true. We are soon gone and we fly away. As Isaac Watts captured so well, time like an ever-rolling stream bears 
all its sons away. All of them. Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm in the Bible, uh, written by Moses. And yet its truths are timeless and perfectly attuned to the, the life that we live here in 21st century America. Because the, foundation, the foundational issues that we do face today are the very same that Moses faced in his day as, as he considered the brevity of life. Um, as he considered all the change that was taking place, think, just think about Moses grew up in the, in the palace of Pharaoh, and yet uh, all that is, is gone. Uh, Moses grew up in Egypt, all that's gone. Uh, the, the people have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and death and decay and change uh, is all that he's seen. And we live in a world defined by constant change. It's a world defined by transience and decay and death, nothing lasts, nothing stays the same, everything is ephemeral, and death waits for all of us, every single one. And in that context, it's important that we ask good questions. Uh, what is this all about? What's it for? What matters? Where do we find security? Where do we find significance? How do we live a life that has weight to it? And we find the answers to those questions here in Psalm 90 is Moses directs our attention to God who is our help in ages past and God who is our hope for years to come. That the life that matters and experiences security and comfort and significance, it's a life that's lived in communion with God, that looks to God, trusting that God is God and He's faithful. His, his love is steadfast. It's unchanging. And we can find shelter there. The majority of the psalm is actually, it's a lament. It's not a praise psalm in that sense. It doesn't start with bless the Lord, praise the Lord. It's a lament. And it's lamenting the judgment of God against man's sin and the, result, the resulting fruit of death. But it's a lament in faith, as the laments of, this, of the Bible are. Uh, Moses begins and ends with a conviction that God is the ultimate answer for man's lost condition. That God is truly a dwelling place for his people. Uh, Mark Vitato in his commentary says Psalm 90 is a prayer comprised of three strophes. The, the prayer opens with an affirmation of faith in the Lord as the eternal refuge of his people. That's verses 1 and 2. And then the middle strophe laments the pain and trouble of the human condition, verses 3 through 11. And the prayer concludes with a series of requests at the heart of which is satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And so we'll be looking at the psalm uh, in that order. The First just looking at God uh, as Israel's shelter and then their need for shelter and then a prayer to experience that. Let's begin at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Uh, Moses begins by reflecting on the gracious way that God has sheltered his people throughout the history of the world. Uh, and as you know, Moses knows quite a bit about the history of the world. He authored the first five books of the Bible. So Moses is the one that told us all about Adam and Eve and their fall into sin. And he told us all about the hard years uh, between the fall and, uh, and the flood. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. And he's very familiar with the ways that God has protected and provided the, those who called upon the name of the Lord from the very beginning. How God sheltered Noah and his family in the ark. How God sheltered Abraham 
and, uh, and his descendants in the, the alien land of Canaan where they, they had no property. They, they were foreigners, strangers there, but God protected them through all their years. And then God brought Jacob and his, and his descendants uh, into the land of Egypt to be protected there in the time of great famine. In, all, in, every, in every age, in every generation, every step of the way, God has been faithful to his people. There was never a generation where God was not a shelter, where God was not a dwelling place. I love how Isaac Watts so poignantly says it, under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Now, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge it doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't seem that way. There are times in our lives where it seems the opposite, that God has not been a shelter at all. He's not protected us from the things that we feared. We prayed and prayed, but our loved ones still died. We begged for the Lord to intervene and help, but the marriage still failed. The work never came through. The healing never arrived. Whatever it is, right? We, this is the common lot of men, and we experience this. Some of you have experienced it in deep and devastating, painful ways, where it, it seems as though God were nowhere to be found. Well, it's helpful to realize the relationship between Psalm 89 and Psalm 90 because these psalms are not just haphazardly put together. They're organized in order to sort of tell a story. And Psalm 90, following 89, well, it helps us to understand what 89 is about. So if you, if you have your Bible, just, just turn it to Psalm 89, where uh, this is a psalm written in the context of Judah's fall into the Babylonian captivity. And so the, uh, the temple has been destroyed, and, and, and the Davidic line has been ended, right? There's no, there's no throne. There's no, there's no uh, son of David reigning on the throne. There's no throne. It's all been taken away, and the people of God have been taken off into captivity. We'll, get, we'll just pick it up in verse 35, where the author of the psalm begins by recounting the promise God made to David, King David. Verse 35. This is God speaking. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun is before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. That's what God promised. And then the author says in verse 38, But now you've cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant, David. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. The author is obviously wrestling. How does he make sense of God's promise in the context of reality? When the temple is is in rubble. The throne is removed. What do you, what do, you do when, when God says, once for all, I've sworn by my holiness. David's throne will endure as long as the sun before me. Well, the, the author is just wrestling, Lord, where, 
it seems, the circumstances would seem strongly to suggest that God has not been faithful to his covenant, that God has actually broken his covenant. He's renounced his covenant. And so the, the, the author writes the, the question in verse 49 of Psalm 89, um, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you sworn to David? Where did it go? What happened to it? The circumstances of the moment, Babylonian captivity, seem very strongly to suggest that it is no longer in existence, that God is, has removed it, that God is not faithful. But Psalm 90 now comes, the very next psalm, to, to answer the question of Psalm 89, verse 49. And it answers it by just sort of drawing us back from the immediate context, and it's a zoom out to the big picture. And it reminds us that in, in, in difficult circumstances, in a world that, where things are collapsing and, and changing, God is always God. That's verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That is a magnificent rock, a, a, a mountain to, to, to place in the middle of the moving stream of life where everything changes, and to, and to place this rock here, the reality of God, that He's always been God, and He always will be as He is, doesn't change. So that when you're reeling, you see from the, the weight of the, the trouble and the trials of life, and it feels like God has abandoned you, when the circumstances would suggest that God has forsaken you, well, Psalm 90 says, God cannot forsake his own because he's always the same. So, so Mark Furtado again says, when all sources of security in life have been stripped away, as was the case during the exile, when the temple was gone, the Davidic monarchy was annihilated. When all that's gone, we are able to see clearly the true source of security. Before there was a temple, before there was a Davidic king on the throne, before Moses, before the mountains were created, before God made the earth, the Lord was there. He who is without beginning or end has always been God. And as God, He has always been the source of human security. It often takes the bottom falling out of life for us to return to this rock-solid truth the Lord is our dwelling place. God is our dwelling place. Not our money, not our abilities, not our reputation, not our country, our military. God and God alone is sufficient to be a dwelling place, a place where you find rest and peace and security. So that means that though we have no idea what 2024 holds, and you don't have to read very long in your newspapers to, to notice that people are nervous about what 2024 holds, both financially, um, 
world scene, wars. And we know that 2024 will hold trials and heartaches like every year does for us. But see, though we don't know the details, what blessings or trials might come, we can be absolutely confident of this, of this one thing, that nothing, absolutely nothing will be able to change this eternal truth from everlasting to everlasting. God is God. He reigns. He rules. He ordains. He orders. He accomplishes everything according to the counsel of His sovereign will. And that is really good news. That means this world is not careening off track. It never has, it never will. Though it is in full-throated rebellion against God, God knows, God ordains, oversees, accomplishes. We don't live in a world ruled by madmen like Vladimir Putin or Jinping. We don't live in a world ruled by market dynamics or corrupt politicians or pandemics. We live in a world ruled by God. And he calls us to remember it. Years ago, I was uh, driving, uh, listening to the radio, and a man called into the host. Uh, it was a Christian, Christian talk show, and, and this man called in. He was wrestling with his faith. He was um, wrestling with God. He had been praying for his brother-in-law, who was not a Christian. And uh, his brother-in-law had suffered a tragic accident and, and was killed. And he was not a Christian. And so this, this man was just wrestling with why would God allow that to happen? And, and um, deeply troubled in his soul. And, and he said, I was, I was just praying about these things and, and I heard a distinct voice in my mind, just three words. Now when people said God told me, sometimes I get nervous and so I was, I was hoping for the best. And it was beautiful, three words. I am God. I am God. I know what I'm doing. I'm sovereign. Trust me. That's that's exactly right. I am God. And God knows what he's about. And one of the reasons that we know that God knows what he's about, one of the ways we know that God is reigning is the fact of death. You see, death can be one of the things that make us really question, just as this man was questioning the sovereignty of God. And yet Moses moves right to that and shows us that death is actually the evidence of God's sovereign rule. Notice verse 3. You, God, return man to dust, saying, return, O children of man. Death isn't something that just happens. Death happens because God commanded that it should happen. Moses certainly here is recalling the words of Genesis chapter 3, 19, when when God says to Adam, in response to to Adam's disobedience, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so Moses ascribes death to the direct hand and act of God. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with the flood. And Moses, of course, experienced this in a dramatic way. He's writing this near the end of his life. He's been leading the Israelites through the wilderness for the last 40 years. And what's been happening in that last 40 years? 
God has been enacting the judgment that he proclaimed. Remember when the spies went into the land and they came back and two of them said, it's, it's, it's great, let's go. And 10 of them said, there are giants there, let's get back to Egypt. And the people panicked and they began to mumble and, and complain against Moses and against God. And, and what did God say? All right, you don't want to go into the land? You're not going to go. No one over the age of 20 is going to see the land. You are all going to die in the wilderness. And that's what Moses has been watching for the last 40 years. An entire generation, hundreds of thousands of Israelites, swept away by the flood of death, swept away into the grave. By the command of God, But friends, that's the story of humanity. Death comes like a flood and sweeps everyone into the grave. No one escapes. Young, old, rich, poor, wise, foolish, it doesn't matter. The grave waits for everyone. Why? Well, Moses tells us why. God sweeps them away. He tells us why he does it. Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of his presence. So when Moses sees the, the flood of death sweeping men away, he's not asking why. He knows why. God has, has taken the sin of man and is, and is, is noticed and is responding judicially, justly. So the connection between man's sin and divine wrath is perfectly clear, and yet people refuse to see the connection at all. So verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who who really thinks about this? People are flying around, right? They're busy, busy at work, busy with pursuing wealth and family and sports and pleasures and, 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 and occupy careers, whatever. Who really stops and considers what death is about and what God must be like? I read an article by a man named Mike Bulmer, and he says, people don't typically think of the relationship between their mortality, their sin, and God's judgment. I've never had an unbeliever come up to me and say, I'm experiencing the wrath of God on my life today as my life hastens to its end. Nobody says that. And yet that's exactly what's happening. Now let me just put a caveat in here. That does not mean that if, if, if men and women die, that that's God's specific response to their sin, right? It's, um, my brother Randy didn't die at the age of 53 because there was some great sin in his life. Job's children didn't die because there was some great sin in their life, right? So we don't, we don't get to make the connection. But, peep, but death reigns, death reigns because of sin. There's not another answer for it. It's not, it's not natural, it's not normal, it's got nothing to do with the circle of life. Death reigns because there's sin in the world. And people don't make the connection. They frit away their, their life without considering the meaning of their death. And that's the tragedy. And, and, and that spurns then Moses to pray, Lord, don't let us be those people. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom, you see, is the, is the, 
the ability to live the one short life that you have in a way that matters for God, which is the, which is the only way it can matter. People talk about you know, living forever in their, in their legacy. Or, um, well, that's, that's not true. I don't care what legacy you build. It just gets swept away like everything else. The only thing that matters, the only thing that gives a weight to a life is, is the glory of God itself. And, and wisdom is, is, is knowing how to live that way. And, and there's something about death, the brevity of life, the certainty of death, and then the eternity that's after it that, that sort of clears the fog out of the mind. I, I heard that um, in medieval times, scholars would place a human skull in a prominent place in the classroom as a vivid reminder don't waste your time. Pay attention. Life is short. Sort of gives focus. Used to be very common. You can still see this, of course, old churches on the East Coast or go over to Europe, and, and you go to the church, and, and what, do you, what do you see all around the church? Graveyards. I mean, tombstones. So you'd look out the window. If, they, if, if we could do this, it would be a wonderful thing to do. And you look out the window and you see, you see the mom and dad are there and grandpa and grandma are there or all the saints that, that used to sit right here and worship not that long ago, now they're, now they're there. You see, it, it sort of clears away the fog of, and the folly of living as though, we're, as, this, as though this life were it. As if eternity was not something to be concerned about. Right, Jesus told a story about a man like that. Remember, the man had... His land produced great wealth, and he realized that his barns are too small, and so he, he, he said, they're going to have to build bigger barns. And Jesus says, he, the man says to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax and eat, drink, and be merry. And, and what did God say to that man? What do we call that man in the Bible? The rich what? The rich fool. Because that's what God says, fool, the text says. This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you've prepared for yourself, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so, and so Moses says, Lord, don't let us be rich fools or poor fools. It doesn't matter. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to recognize in a very short time, we are going to step over the threshold into eternity. Eternity. And it will be eternal bliss or eternal horror. And we're this close. And, and a wise person, and you see, lives this little short period of time in view of eternity. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Don't let us be fools as we live our life. And then Moses prays, satisfy us, verse 14. This is really the central prayer of the psalm. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You see, that's the experience of living in the shelter of God. So live confident and, and satisfied in the steadfast love of God. I love what he says. Do this in the morning, right? Don't let me waste a whole day running around like a fool, but satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love so that everything I do today is, is in that context, in that confidence. God loves me. 
Again, I love what Bulmer says here about the steadfast love of God. He says, steadfast love speaks of God's eternal and unbreakable commitment to love his people. It speaks of his eternal and absolutely reliable love. Sometimes it is spoken of as his covenant love, but the key idea is the love that flows out of his, it is the love that flows out of his character, out of his own heart. In other words, it, it means that God doesn't love us simply because he must, right? Because he, he's covenantally bound to do so. It's true. In Jesus, he's covenantally bound to love all those that belong to Jesus, but that's not why he loves nor is God's steadfast love simply an act or exercise of his will. He doesn't love us simply because he's chosen to do so. He does love us because he's chosen to do so, but, but it's deeper than that. God's steadfast love is an act of his being, an act of his nature, his character. He loves out of the, the deep truth of his own divine character, right? God is love, the Bible says. He's an infinite ocean of love. And that's why his love is steadfast. That's why it never ceases, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? What's first of all, faithfulness to himself. Thank you, God, for being this God. And then faithfulness to your covenant and faithfulness to your election and faithfulness to your people, all flowing out of the character of God. Now, friends, imagine what your life would be like if every day you lived in the conviction of that love for you. Every day, no matter what's happening, you know my heavenly Father loves me. His love is steadfast. It never wavers. He, doesn't, he didn't love me more yesterday. He's not going to love me more tomorrow. He loves me today with all the infinite love of his heart. Today. And I don't know what the trials are about. I don't understand what they're all for. I, I, I have some sense that God has good purposes in them. But whatever it is, I'm going to trust it because my Father loves me. He loves me. That would be a shelter, wouldn't it? That would be a place where you could find rest. But of course, there's things that militate against that assurance. And the thing that militates against it is our sin. We sin. Daily grotesquely at times. Well, it's always grotesque. It just maybe it doesn't seem so to us. Right? We, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we lust. Our, our pride erupts in this, in this wicked anger, impatience. We do things that we know are wrong. Some of you here this morning are, are just wrestling with that truth in a deep way that this, this week was not a good week. It was not a good week. And it's hard for you to believe that, that God has a love for you when you think about your sin. But friends, you see, that's exactly the beauty of God's steadfast love. He, he works to save sinners just like you from the penalty of our sin. And that's what Moses concludes with in verse 16 and 17. Save us. Teach us. Satisfy us. Save us. Let your work be shown to your servants. What work? Well, the saving work, right? Your glorious power to their children. What power? Well, your saving power. Save us. Forgive us. Restore us. Heal us. Renew us. Deliver us from all our sins and take away our shame. That's, that's the prayer. 
Lord, save us. Show us your saving work. Well, was that prayer answered? Yeah, it was answered. In Moses' time, it was answered where God, through Joshua, led them into the land, defeated their enemies, brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. But that was, of course, just a shadow pointing ahead to something vastly greater, where Jesus Christ, the New Testament Joshua, has come and has rescued us. In this, the Bible says, Romans 5, in this God showed his love for us, showed his saving power for us. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. God has manifested his love. And we receive it, right? So that we can be glad and rejoice all of our days. I love that he prays, not just show your saving work to me, show it to my, to my kids. Your glorious power to their children. That's, that's the prayer of every believing parent. Don't just save me, Lord, save my children. Give my children the ability to see your glorious power, your saving might. That's, that's what we pray. We must pray that. We do pray that. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prayer right in Scripture. It's a prayer that God delights in. Lord, save our children. And then make our lives count. So save us, save our children. And then verse 17, make our lives count. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Though our lives are very short and we will soon fly away. Oh God, let them be significant. Let it, let it, let it count. Let, let, it, let it have some weight to it. That it matters for things that last forever. Let us... Help us, Lord, to live our life for the glory of God. That's what he's saying. Establish the work of our hands. Help us to live for the glory of God so that when we come to the end, you see, we could hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Give our lives meaning. Give them significance. You know, it's fascinating to me how the New Testament answers all the questions and concerns of Psalm 90 in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's one text specifically that if you have your Bible, it wouldn't hurt just to put in the, in the, in the notes alongside Psalm 90, 1 Corinthians 15, particularly the end. So, Paul, so, so Moses has been talking about the reality of death. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, oh death, where is your victory? Where is it? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Yeah, that's what Moses said. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has been defeated. Death of our loved ones who've died in the Lord. Their death is an entrance into the glory of Jesus Christ. It's painful. It's hard. And yet they are more than conquerors. But then notice what Paul says in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So as we get on with life, confident of our, of our victory over death in Jesus Christ, we can abound in, in the work of the Lord, whether that's just raising your family, whether it's working in the shop, whatever God's called you to do, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. It honors the Lord. It glorifies God. 
It matters. It has weight. It has significance, though no one in the world maybe even notices it. It matters as you, as you care for your loved ones, taking care maybe of your elderly parents or, or just trying to be a blessing in the community. Whatever it is, as, you, as, you, as our labor is for the glory of God, it matters. God establishes the work of your hands. Friends, this is where we stand as we start a new year. We stand in the confidence that God is our shelter. He's our refuge. He's our, he's our dwelling place. He's our rock. We're going to be okay. He's promised it. He's going to shelter us like he sheltered Noah in the ark. doesn't mean life won't hurt. doesn't mean we won't suffer. Jesus promises that we will. It just means that we're not going to be overwhelmed. We're not, we don't have to despair. And we can have absolute confidence that death does not need to concern us. Because Jesus Christ has triumphed over death. And that Jesus now reigns at the right hand of God. And that Jesus is directing your life. And as you live trusting in him, then whatever 2024 looks like, and we'll leave that to God. But we can have the confidence. We'll be secure. And our life will matter. We'll have significance. As we, as we dwell in the dwelling place of the Lord our God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just thank you that you've been our dwelling place through all the generations. Lord, there's never been on this planet a generation of men and women who were able to say that you had failed in any way. You've never failed. And Lord, your sovereign reign and and rule over this world is even, Lord, daily brought to our attention as we read the obituaries. And we see that all men die, not by accident, not by chance, but because, Lord, that's your response to this world of sin. And, and yet, Lord, I thank you that you have entered into this very world and Jesus, the very Son of God, suffered death bearing our guilt and bearing our shame and by suffering death has removed the curse Lord I pray for those this morning who are grieving the death of a loved one I thank you Lord that we can have the confidence of their victory their joy because of Jesus I pray for those this morning who are afraid to die if we, if we were told, Lord, that tomorrow we, is our last day, it would be very, very devastating. We're not ready to die. Jesus, I, I pray that you would remove all fear of death and that we would have a hope and faith in you that, would, that it, would, it would equip us, that we would not be afraid as we dwell in the shelter of our Most High God. Father, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the beautiful truth that you are God from everlasting to everlasting. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, you are our God, not by our choice, but yours. And that we can live each day in the steadfast love of God. Oh God, then make us strong and confident. Give us peace. Remove anxiety and worry and fear. As we, your people, trust in you, our God pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together, respond to the word this morning, and delighting in God as the ancient of days. Let's stand and sing.
people said? Receive his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace till Christ come again. Amen.